encourage you to take your Bibles and join us in the book of Ephesians today, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll begin reading in a minute, and verses 1 to 10. As we have uh, begun again to consider these verses, I want to remind you that the focus of the book of Ephesians is to declare the glory of God ultimately in the church. But before he gets to the church, which he will in the latter part of chapter 2, a passage we'll cover later, he deals with the glory of God's dealing with us as individuals, our personal salvation. And there perhaps is no uh, more beautiful paragraph in the Bible than this that details the magnitude of our personal salvation. We're thankful for these words. You'll remember as he came to the end of chapter 1, we read that phrase there in chapter 1, verse 19. He references the immeasurable greatness of his power, meaning God's power, toward us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of his power. And then he immediately references the resurrection of Christ. So I want you to hear again his argument because this, that argument is fueling what he's about to say in chapter 2. His argument is, God has raised his son from the dead. Let that sit there a minute. The Apostle Paul in his defense in the book of Acts, one of his trials, he asked the question rhetorically, why do you find it incredible that God raises the dead? In other words, it was, an, it was an incredible thing then, and it's an incredible thing now. But the apostle, in his conversation, or his defense of his own apostleship, asked that question rhetorically. Why is it that you find it incredible that God has great power? That God has so much power that he can raise the dead. The answer to that, of course, is that for the most part, we don't think about God and the realms in which God lives and operates and serves. We think about our own realm. What can I do? We think God is like us. Turns out he's not. Praise God. Good news. He's not like me or you. He's not weak. He's not two-faced. He's, he's not erratic. He's not inconsistent. He's not unfaithful. God is faithful, and God is strong, and God is loving, and God works that way all the time, every time. So it is incredible to us because we don't think about God in terms of God. We think about God in terms of man, and that is a problem. Because it is incredible, isn't it, for a man to raise a man from the dead. That is incredible. In fact, it's impossible. We don't have such powers. We don't have such strength. And yet, God does. Because he is God. We celebrate today that we have a God like that. And so, at the end of chapter 1, he makes that statement. According to the, the uh, what, rather, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The, the immeasurable greatness of his power, which ultimately raises his own son from the dead. That is, if you will, the key verse that's going to fuel the, the balance of Ephesians. 
So we're going to read today in light of that. So what is an evidence? What is a characteristic? What is a sign that we can see of the immeasurable power of God? It turns out God raises his son from the dead, and he also raises us from the dead. And in context, in chapter 2, it's not going to be our physical resurrection. It's going to be our spiritual resurrection. He's going to bring us out of death into life. Here it is, verse 1. And you, and you, that's a contrasting phrase, right? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, it's my favorite conjunction phrase in the scripture, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to note just a couple of things in this section. I can tell you that books have been written about this paragraph. We don't have time to cover every nuance here by any measure, but instead we will show you these two things. You note in verses 1 to 3, he details our former status with God, and we will consider that. Uh, Then secondly, in verse 4 and following, he changes that, that what was, was, but but what was has now been changed. So in chapter 2, verse 4, there's that strong conjunction, but God, but God. There's a but here that matters, and that but turns the whole thing in a different direction. And we're going to see the apostle's argument and his conversation because it is so helpful, so powerful for us, for our joy, for our happiness, for our fruitfulness, and for the hope of eternal life. These are precious words. So note, first of all, in the first three verses, he talks about our former status with God. This is the way we were. This is who we once were, how we were considered by God. You were dead. Dead. Now, that word is obviously a powerful word. It's not a word that we take lightly when we think of death. I will tell you that 99.5% of us think of physical death. Uh, That's not what he's talking about. So for the half of 1% of you who are thinking about your spiritual death, you are on track because that's exactly what he's talking about. Interesting, when you talk to people in the culture, they're not, for the most part, concerned about their spiritual life or their spiritual death. Such 
concepts are, for the most part, foreign. And what the culture, what the world believes about these things is basically to keep them at arm's length because they're troubling, because they're confusing, because they don't provide any measure of hope. Nor should they, by the way. There is no hope. If you're spiritually dead, you can't fix that. If you're spiritually dead, you don't have an antidote for that. Now, physical death, we keep working, working, spending millions and 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 millions of research dollars to try to find a cure for death, physical death. And we've done a pretty good job, obviously, right? Longevity is exponentially higher than it was for our parents' generation or our grandparents, and specifically beyond that for our great-great-great-grandparents. You can go to old cemeteries, and you'll find that folks lived 40 years or 50 years, maybe 60 years, and they died. You go to cemeteries today, and the people who are dying are not 40 years old for the most part, 50 years old. They are much older than that. So we, we are keeping death at bay by means of uh, science and research and so forth, and we can all acknowledge a, a kindness of God in that. Thanks be to God. But the world is thinking about physical death. But the Apostle Paul is not. That's not what he's talking about. You were dead, he says in verse 1, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, you're dead because of your sins. You're dead because of your doing. You're, you're dead because of your actions. You're dead because of your failures. You're dead because of your shortcomings. You're not dead because God failed. You're not dead because the angels failed. You're not dead because the prophets failed. You're not dead because your mom failed or your dad failed. You can't blame it on anyone else. You are dead because you failed. He wants us to wear that, to feel that, if you will, to assume the weight of that. We must contend with that in our lives. Our former status was well-deserved by every last one of us. And it's worse than you can imagine, or worse than you thought it was, or believe perhaps it is. If you're here today and you've never been born again, I want you to know you're, you're more dead than you know. You're, you're in greater spiritual calamity than you know. I want you to notice how he phrases it. Someone has called this the, the trinity of evil. I want you to notice how he phrases it. Notice in verse 1, uh, you're dead in which you once walked following the course of the world. In other words, you were dead because of the effects of the world in your life. Now, there's none of us who's not in the world. We're all in the world. And so the effects of the world have affected us all. We acknowledge that. Notice that that's not the end of it, though. Verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, our enemies are not just the world, but it's also the devil. The devil. How bad is that? Well, pretty bad. This is the book where he's eventually going to get to spiritual warfare in chapter 6. And he's going to remind you that you don't war against flesh and blood. You war against principalities and powers in places that you know not of. There's stuff going on right now in the heavens that are way above your pay grade. 
way above our understanding, way above our knowledge. God is at work, warring against, competing against, tearing down strongholds in ways that we don't understand. We war against the prince of the power of the air. We were dead because of that. We don't have, we don't have the resources. We don't have the allies. We don't, we don't have any weapons that, that are going to defeat him apart from God. So we are undone. But that, again, is not the end of it. Notice in verse 3, there's one more evil among whom we all live in the passions of our flesh. The world, the devil, the flesh, the trinity of evil. <laughs> in other words, friends, you were not only spiritually dead, it was far worse than you thought. In fact, for those who are unbelievers today, it is far worse than they think. It is far worse than we typically think. Even we who have been born again and rescued from the world, the devil, and the flesh. We have a tendency to think, even though he's an unbeliever, you know, he's, he's basically a good man. Can we all agree that there are just loads and loads and scads and scads of good men that are not believers. We, we just need to deal with that. They're good men. They're good by my standards. They're good by your standards. The problem is that's not the standard that he's talking about. Because even the men that are good to me or you, that are kind men or giving men or, or, or deferential men, men that serve, men that love and, and respect people, treat people well or with dignity, even men like that, if they are unbelievers in Jesus Christ, they don't have a solution for the core, listen to me, the core rot or decay of their own soul. They are dead in their sins. And the only antidote for that is not put on new clothes and go take a shower or, you know, change your evil ways or turn over a new leaf. The antidote for my spiritual calamity is not earthly. You can't fix the world with the world. You can't fix the devil without someone stronger or different than the devil. And you can't change human flesh if you're still bound to your flesh. You just can't. So his point is, you need power. You need real power to bring you out of spiritual death into spiritual life. So he's already referenced this immeasurable power in chapter 1, verse 19. Now he's going to explain how that applies to you personally. This is why it's gospel. The word gospel means good news. Why is it good news? Because I was dead. And nobody has a fix for dead. 
Nobody has an answer for dead. Nobody has a solution for dead except God who has immeasurable power over dead. And he has given that power to me and to you by means of his sweet and tender grace. So he turns the conversation, verse 4, and deals not now with our former status, but with our new status with God. God, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. This is our new status. We've been made alive. We've been raised from the dead. We've been brought back to life. Those of us who have experienced the physical grief of the loss of a loved one can only imagine what it would be like if an hour later, a day later, or a week later, or a month later, or even now, that our loved ones would be raised to life and we could actually touch them and welcome them and hug them and receive love and affection from them. We can only imagine that because we don't know what that's like. We don't, we don't understand what that could be like. Because we've never had any experience comparable to that. And yet, the Bible says that when we were dead, God made us alive. The world doesn't have a category for that. But as Christian people, not only do we, we must. We must understand this. We must contend with the fact that God has intervened in our lives in such a way that is strong and powerful and righteous and good and it is fueled by his great love think of that verse 4 because of the great love with which he loved us who are we that God would bring us back to life who are we that God would rescue us from death well we are nobody in and of ourselves after all we are captured by the world the devil and the flesh but God but God, that's why it's good news. God intervened. We are at the mercy of God, and praise God, He has been merciful. We need to spread this news. We need to share this news. We need to let others know this news, because this is the news. I assure you that if we had a cure for physical death, we would announce it far and wide. But because the world has little regard for their spiritual destiny, we feel intimidated to talk about the spiritual vitality found in Christ. Because after all, they don't care. Well, they may not care, but it doesn't mean that it's not good news. And for those who have eyes to see, we want to tell them. We want to encourage them. We want them to know this Christ. And we don't know who those people are, so we tell them all. We're thankful for God's care through the gospel of my life and your life. Who am I that God would give me a gracious family, a church long ago, men who invested in little boys long ago, and they did it repeatedly, monotonous in its expression, and yet... <coughs> God used that and so many other factors in my life, as he did in yours, to bring you to faith. Thanks be to God. He is rich in mercy because he loves us. He gives us this great grace. 
I want you to notice how he describes what it means to be made alive. We don't think in these terms, but how good is the good news? Well, I want you to notice what the apostle says in verse 6 and following. He says, first of all, he raised us up, raised us up with him. We are raised from the dead. Death has no dominion. Death has no power. I was transferred from death to life. And so death was defeated, thanks be to God, by Christ. There's a second verb he uses. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Seated us with him. Again, go back to chapter 1, and you'll see that phraseology similarly applied to Christ. Verse 20, chapter 1. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Look at you, verse 6 here. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, where Jesus is, that's where I am. Where Jesus' spiritual life is, that's where my spiritual life is. Where Jesus' spiritual destiny is, that's where my spiritual destiny is. I've been born again. I've been transformed. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old has died and the new has come. Thanks be to God. All of this because of Christ. I've been raised with Christ and I've been seated with Christ. Think of that for a moment. We, we understand seated, right? Let's assume for the sake of conversation that you're going to have some folks over for lunch today. And you have a table. Maybe you've got a big table. Let's say for the sake of conversation, your table seats 10. That's a big table. You've got 10. And what if in the process of whatever today, somebody brings an unplanned guest and now you have 11 you'd plan for 10. You have 10 chairs. You don't have an 11th chair. Now, if you're normal, what that means is that somebody, the the host or the hostess, usually just says, don't worry about it. I don't need to sit and you let all your guests sit. You you could work it out that way. But if you insist that everybody be seated at your table, you either have to have another chair or you just have to contend with the embarrassment that somebody is odd, somebody's, somebody's really not planned for, or, or if you will, somebody doesn't belong. Now, you won't do that for your guests, so you'll move heaven and earth to, to make sure that they feel like they belong. I understand that, but understand that's the power of the chair, isn't it? If I have a chair, I belong. The scripture says that Jesus is seated with the Father. He belongs. And the scripture says that God made me alive, raised me up, and seated me as well. Do you belong in heaven? (laughs) Listen, I help people all the time deal with guilt because they believe that somehow their guilt disqualifies them from belonging. Maybe you're here today. You're overwhelmed by your shame or your guilt. Can I just simply encourage you here? If you've been born again, you belong. You have a seat. It's got your name on it. You're welcome in the company of God. 
You're expected in the company of God. The reality is I am guilty of sin, correct? You are guilty of sin. Now, your sin's not my sin. My sin's not your sin. Our sins are not their sins, and their sins are not our sins. Are we now debating on whether or not you came in with two left feet or two left arms or, you know, bad hair day or, well, the reality is it doesn't matter what your limitation is. It doesn't matter what your disqualifier is by worldly measure. The Bible says if you have been born again, you have a seat. I think about all of these uh, Afghanistan videos. A lot of folks try to get out of Afghanistan. Some of them had a seat. Some of them didn't. And it's tragic, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's tragic. That people who want to live don't have a seat. But those who have experienced the mercy of God, we have a seat. Let us contend with that in our own lives. That no matter lies from the devil, no matter guilt from our past sins, can or should disqualify us. Let us not have our joy stolen from us by the lies of the enemy. You are not there because of you. You are there because of God. But God, rich in mercy, because he loved you, gave you a seat. Wow. But that's not all he says. Verse 7, he not only raised us and seated us, but he has promised us that in the coming ages, he would show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. In other words, to borrow a phrase, you ain't seen nothing yet. Right? So there's a lot of questions about heaven. Uh, recently, I was in a, in a little conversation talking kind of Q&A, and I didn't get this question, but I got a report that of another pastor who got this question. He said the question that was asked him, and he was looking to me for some counsel, the question he was asked was, when we get to heaven, what age will we be? Now, that's a really good question for which there is zero answer. So any answer to that is a, is a guess. I could hope I'm more my 16-year-old self than my current self. But, you know, at the end, I don't know. Nobody else knows. Uh, we might say, well, it doesn't matter. True. But it doesn't, elim I mean, it doesn't eliminate our curiosity. By the way, that question came from a child. So... You know, they get a pass on every question. They can ask any question they want, including how much money do you make? And nobody argues with them. They just grin and say, well, that's so sweet. You're such a child. Your father put you up to that, right? Uh, so forth. Notice what he says here. You've been raised up with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, in order that he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. In other words... There's more coming. You're not just simply going to heaven and going to sit there every day and eat peppermints. You know, fanned on, sitting on your cloud and eating and, and being fanned by some 
palm frond. That's not the biblical picture. Instead, God is going to, in your eternal existence, He's going to show you the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness. God intends to lavish. He's going to be more extravagant than you've ever known. He's going to be more generous than you've ever known. He's going to be more loving than you've ever known. He's going to give to you and give to you and resource you and help you and supply you in ways that you have never, ever, 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 ever experienced. Maybe you've had moments of extravagance in your life. I suspect we all have to some degree. This is the nicest whatever I've ever had. Nicest meal, nicest car. This is the nicest hotel. This is the nicest house. This is the nicest suit. These are the nicest friends. This is the nicest church. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've had things that you just thought were over the top, different, qualitatively. And you just say, this is like the ultimate. This is great. This is how those other people live, right? But not me. This is not where I live. You will live there. It's already yours. You just haven't gotten to experience it yet. What kind of power does God have? He's got the power to take people like us. And so bless us, so give to us, so help us that we're going to live like we have never, ever imagined. That's why it's gospel. That's why it's good news. That's why it's the best news. That's why the best news is not possible here. Your best life is not here. <laughs> Your best life cannot be here. Because God has told you that in the coming ages, He intends to pour out His immeasurable riches in Christ upon us. That's my new status. So I'm not dead. I'm not bound to the world, the devil, or the flesh. I'm not restricted by those anymore. That was my old life. That was true, but it's not true anymore because I have a new status with God made possible by His immeasurable power. He details that in these next verses that are treasured by every born-again Christian. Verse 8, For by grace, by grace, in verse 4, it's mercy. In verse 8, it's grace. You say, what's the difference between mercy and grace? Well, there's a frog here worth a difference. And if you're on the receiving end, there's no difference, right? What motivates mercy maybe is a little different than maybe what motivates grace. But the net effect is that by grace, I get mercy. 
By grace, I get forgiveness. By grace, I get eternal life. I get raised, seated, shown immeasurable greatness of power of his love, his kindness. By grace. So it is by grace, thanks be to God. Invariably, we talk to folks and we ask them, on what basis do you have the hope of heaven? Why do you believe that when you die, you're going to heaven? And invariably, their answer is something about themselves. The reason I'm going to heaven is because I work hard, because I take care of my wife, because I love my children, because I pay my taxes, because I mow my grass and don't throw trash in my neighbor's yard, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. I'm going to heaven because of me and my performance. But that is not at all what the Bible says. The Bible says you're going to heaven on the basis of Christ's performance. There are not going to be any people in heaven who belong based on their works. Nobody. Except the one who did all the work for everybody who does go to heaven. There's only one worthy. There's only one worthy to open the scroll. There's only one lion, the tribe of Judah. One. So it is by grace that we are saved. Thanks be to God. Of no merit of our own, no work of our own. In fact, it's all a part of God's incredible love, His incredible grace, His incredible mercy, so that no one may boast. We get to heaven, there won't be anybody saying, How did you get here? You know, that's the standard joke line. You look at that guy and wow, I was just shocked that you made it. You ought to be shocked that you made it. Bucker, buckaroo. You, you should be shocked that you made it. It is a shock that any of us are going to make it. It is a shock that there is actually a God who is not capricious. You know, the Greeks had this pantheon of gods from Zeus on down, and they, they were all capricious. You get up on a bad day and throw lightning. Get them a bad day and, you know, throw some earthquakes around. Have a bad day and bring a pestilence. Have a bad day and all the cows stop calving, etc. The world, when they create gods, these gods are like humans. They're capricious. They get up and they do crazy stuff. They do stuff that, because they're just in a bad mood. When you make a man, when you make a god, he looks like a man. But in this case, the one true God is not like man. He is faithful. He is loving. He is generous. He is full of grace and mercy. But not at the expense of his justice, not at the expense of his truth, not at the expense of his righteousness. Instead, he sends his own son to bear the punishment for you and you and you and you and me so that he can now, by virtue of our trusting in him and his work, 
be transferred into the category of righteousness earned by Jesus, not earned by me. Why are you here? Well, I'm with him. Okay. He belongs. And if he says you belong, you belong. So there won't be any of these conversations like, how did you get here? Because the answer to that question is identical. Times millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people who will be there. We're all going to get there the same way. I'm with him. Or we don't get there. Because if I don't have him, then all I have left is me. Or you. And it turns out you're damaged goods just like me. You're not wearing the robes of righteousness. We invited you to the wedding and you came underdressed. And you'll be turned away at the door. But if you come with the robes of Jesus' righteousness, you are fitly dressed. And it is appropriate to welcome you to this event. Thanks be to God. Our new status with God is by grace through faith. You apprehend this by trusting, by believing, by hoping in Christ, by looking to Christ. When we baptize someone here, we ask them, who is your hope? What is your hope? And the answer, of course, is Jesus Christ. I'm hoping in the work of Christ. I'm hoping in the, I'm hoping in the promises of God in Jesus Christ. That's it. So that's not very complicated. No, it's pretty simple. Pretty simple. But it's hard. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe a man who was dead has come back to life. It's hard to believe the man that was dead and came back to life was actually born of a virgin. That's kind of hard to believe. It's hard to believe that the man who was dead and came back to life who was born of a virgin is actually a God and man simultaneously. It's really hard to believe. You know, you Christians, y'all believe the strangest stuff. Yeah, I know. We do. Kind of amazing. Kind of amazing that God would give his only son. But I believe that a God who loves me would give his only son. Kind of amazing that a God who gives his only son would allow him to be brutalized by the people that he created. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. But I believe that a God who loves me would give his only son to be brutalized. It's kind of amazing that God would give his only son and allow him to be brutalized only to raise him from the dead. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing that God would somehow do all that for me, for you, and for millions, dare we say tens of millions, hundreds of millions, who knows, others who will come to see it and believe it.
kind of amazing. It's hard to believe. Yeah, it's hard to believe. But it's the truth. I want to tell you again, God loves you so much that he would give his only begotten son so that you would have a mechanism through faith to receive his grace. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, don't leave here today without talking to someone about that. We desire that you know the amazing grace of our God. If you leave here today without Christ, then you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And the only remedy for that is life. And the only keeper of life around here is God himself, who gives generously to sinners. Praise God for his tender mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you've loved us and the way you've served us, the way you continue to resource us day after day after day after day. You've caused us to be born again, created us to serve you, the good works here in verse 10, Father. Those are, those are our works for you. Pray God you'd help us go, here, go from here serving you, loving you, trusting you. We need you. Without you, we're lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.